I, I just stopped taking care of myself. Um, I stopped eating. I stopped bathing. I wasn't sleeping. And, you know, I, I got to the point where I just did not care if I lived or died. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. All right, welcome to the Depression Files. Tonight, I am very excited. We have Jacob Moore on the line, and Jacob is a filmmaker and founder of No Stigma's Mental Health Support Community. Jake, welcome to the show. Hey, Al. Thanks so much for having me here. I am really excited to have you on the show. You know, I have seen no stigmas and plenty of information coming across social media and so forth about the organization. So I'm really excited to learn more about that tonight. So glad to hear. I'm, I'm glad that the uh, information's getting out there. Absolutely. So I know you uh, you have a long history, it sounds like, of mental illness yourself that started uh, at quite a young age. Yeah, that's right. You know, really, I mean, some would say in the womb, um, because, you know, what you experience, what your, you know, your family experiences, you know, it, it, it transfers. But, you know, my, my first kind of uh, traumatic experience really happened when I was six years old. And my birth father uh, died by suicide. Wow. So six years old. I mean, are you even able to comprehend something like that at that point? You know, what's what's really interesting about it is um, it was pr shared pretty openly with us, which is very rare. Right. And, you know... For better or for worse, uh, that knowledge early on, um, I, I think, led to a relationship with suicide that that's pretty uncommon. Um, you know, kind of understanding what it was at an early age. I, I I never had that that kind of reveal that I feel like a lot of people have when they lose a a family member or a loved one early on. You know, because I knew really right from the beginning, it was, it's always been a part of my life. Right. Do you have uh, siblings? I do, yeah. I'm the oldest, uh, and so I have a sister uh, who's a year and four days younger than me. We're almost Irish twins. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and then a, a brother who's two years younger than me. Okay. And so what kind of impact? I mean, you were all so young. Mm -hmm. And uh, what kind of impact did that have immediately and and just even in the near near time after that, the, the year or two, your mom is on her own, three kids. How did you guys all kind of bond together or, or was there a stronger bond built? Yeah, you know, and, and I think not just the three of us, but the four of us were all really young. My, my mom, you know, she got pregnant with me when she was 19. So... Wow. 
when he died, she was 26 years old. Holy smokes. Yeah. So three little ones. And, um, you know, as my mom puts it, we really grew up together, you know, in a lot of ways we're 20 years apart for, you know, for us, we were kind of immediately in survival mode, you know, that was, that was just what we had to do. It was all we could do to just to get by, to, you know, to function day to day. There was, you know, no thought of, um, you know, mental health or therapy or, you know, being in crisis situations and getting the the type of support that we needed. It, it was just day to day survival. Did your mom have any kind of support at the time? Relatives living nearby or anything? Yeah. You know, my, uh, my grandparents, I th- I think were very supportive and, um, you know, and she has siblings as well. So my aunts and uncles were supportive, but no one had ever experienced anything like this. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to act or how to properly support, you know, people in crisis like this. So, you know, they did their best with, with love and casseroles, <laughs> but, right. you know, um, but as far as any sort of, you know, actually dealing with the trauma, actually processing the events, it, it, really had to happen naturally over many, many years, you know, because there wasn't, there wasn't, you know, someone saying, oh, you should, you should go to therapy. You should see a grief counselor. Right. 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 Have you learned more through your mom about your dad's history? Like, was there a long history of depression? Yeah. In fact, you know, when I was home recently for the holidays, my, uh, my mom and I went through my father's things, uh, a box of his things. And, um, gosh, it was really tough. I mean, some of the things I'd seen, you know, some of the, you know, some of his history I knew about, but to go through it, to go through and see his letters, um, the letters that he wrote to his mom, uh, who was abusive when he was a kid, the, letters that he wrote to my mom from prison when he was incarcerated several times um, for things like drug use, petty theft, to see, you know, this history from, you know, from him being a kid with a learning disability that was never treated, um, being in an abusive home, having anxiety and depression, self-treating with alcohol and drugs. And, you know, just a real sad history of someone who was extremely intelligent, uh, empathetic, empathic, uh, but just didn't have the support that he needed to, to be able to deal with the challenges that he faced. Right. How old was he at the time that he took his life? Um, he was just 30 years old. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, what was really interesting for me was when I, when I got to be his age and realized that I was going to outlive my father, you know, that I outlived, you know, the age that he was at when he died was, um, that was, that was an interesting time in my life. How did it impact you? 
Well, in a couple of different ways, you know, because growing up, you know, I experienced an extreme amount of anxiety um, and depression when I was in high school. And, you know, so knowing that I was my, my father's son and I had, you know, some of the same predispositions, um, in a lot of ways, you know, we're, we're very similar in our build and the way that we look. And, you know, so I've always, I don't know, I've always kind of seen myself, you know, as, as really vulnerable to following in his, in his footsteps. So there was kind of a duality, um, when I got to that age of understanding that, okay, I've made it this far. Um, you know, despite being suicidal in high school, uh, I'd made it. Um, but also understanding that I may not be completely out of the woods, right? That there's still, there are still vulnerabilities. There's still, you know, struggles that I have, which may lead to a place where, you know, suicide becomes a thought for me again. Right. Uh, and so that, so it's really scary, you know, it's scary to understand that there's, that there is that genetic component. Right. However, the one thing that I, I take solace in and, and now after all these years, um, you know, it, it just now being in fact, um, the 18th of January, um, was the, well now the, um, 30, first anniversary of his death and understanding that a lot of it, yes, there's a genetic component, but my life has been so much different from his and I've had such an incredible support system. And, and although I've struggled, I have so many resources. And so the knowledge that I've gained, the skills that I've acquired over the years, the support systems that I have, make me so much less vulnerable than he was. Yeah. I think, uh, without a doubt that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, you know, I think the research shows that if there has been a suicide in the family, then the, the chances of another suicide happening increases. But like you said, you have so many tools now, so many supports and you've learned so much, I'm sure through your journey that, uh, I highly doubt there's any more likelihood than anybody else for, for that to happen to you as well. Yeah. And in fact, I've, I've put in place what I call if then plans. And these are, these are plans that I put in place uh, when I'm healthy, when I'm doing well to account for the times when I may not be. And one of those plans is related to suicide. And in fact, I, I wrote a letter called my unsuicide note, which really lays out how I support myself and uh, the permission that I give people in my life to intercede on my behalf, should I in the future um, become suicidal. Right. Oh, that's fantastic. What a brilliant idea. Hey, I want to take you back a bit further. So age six, you, you have this tragic, tragic loss in your life. And I know you talk about having pretty much debilitating, uh, anxiety and depression for much of your life. When do you think looking back, 
when do you think that started for you? I know high school, it sounds like, was a, a terribly difficult time for you. Was it even before that? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, like I said, we, we were in survival mode. So that, you know, when that fight or flight response goes on overdrive like that, you know, it, it just puts you in that constant state of anxiety and panic. And so, you know, for me, that was that was a way of life growing up. You know, I, I always had uh, a nervous stomach. I always had, you know, the sense of anxiety. Um, you know, I felt like I was different than other kids. I, I knew that there was something wrong with me, but but the doc, doctors couldn't find it, right? I would go and have exams and they would look, you know, for, at all these physical symptoms and say, well, this is a perfectly healthy young man, um, you know, but I knew inside that there was something wrong, that there was, you know, and I didn't know if it was cancer or something wrong with my heart, but, um, you know, but there was, there was something there. Um, and in fact, you know, I experienced, um, a fair bit of paranoia, um, you know, because this, the anxiety a, a lot of the time was related to, um, to things physically wrong with me or to death, right. Um, either being afraid of my own death or, um, the death of a loved one, which, you know, given my experiences is you know, perfectly understandable, but because no one could explain all of these physical symptoms that I was having, uh, which we now now know, of course, were a result of the anxiety, right, the f- physical right. ma- manifestations of those. But, you know, at the time, the way that I explained it was that I was actually some sort of human experiment. Hmm. And I came to believe that I was somehow cooked up in a lab, that they were all lying to me. And I became very paranoid Um, and it was a very, very, um, scary time in my life because I, you know, I, I, that's the way that I explained what I was experiencing. It was the only thing that ironically made sense, you know, but I, I felt like I was being watched. I would, you know, I remember, um, you know, being in the bathroom and, uh, taking the uh, bathroom cabinet off of the wall because I was convinced that it was a two-way mirror that there were people behind it watching me, wow. you know? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, go to the doctor's office and they would do physicals and I would, you know, hook me up to all these electrodes and, you know, a halter monitor for my heart and I would run on the treadmill and they would do all these tests draw all this blood and, you know, tell me that everything was fine, but I just, I didn't believe it, right. you know? Man, the... The, you mentioned the paranoia and and around death. I mean, to to be six years old and suddenly lose your father, I can only imagine that that was a constant fear that one day you come home and your mom is gone, mm-hmm. or one of your siblings is gone. I I can't imagine what kind of, and, and clearly that was how your body was reacting. How long did it go on for where you were visiting the doctor with all these physical symptoms? Was this years? Yeah, it was definitely, um, you know, during the early years of my life, you know, and it, it got to the point where, you know, where I, st- I started to outgrow it as far as the, the paranoia related to it. But this, this, you know, idea of the nervous stomach really, I never really did um, until, you know, more recently when I've had a much more healthy relationship with anxiety. 
you know, but it's something that I just, I kind of came to live with. And, and the way that I dealt with it eventually was I put on a mask and I pretended and I studied other people's behaviors and I looked at what normal people quote unquote looked like and I mimicked that behavior and I pretended to be like everyone else, even though inside I still felt different. I still felt like I wasn't normal, like I didn't fit in. I pretended. I think that's so common, especially with men, just putting that mask on, plugging through the day, don't talk about the emotions, hold it all in, put a smile on your face and pretend. Yep. Yeah, that that's exactly what happened. And, you know, unfortunately, that stuff doesn't go away, right? The 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 trauma, the anxiety, those things they come out somehow. And so for me, uh it it came out with some, you know, some unwanted behavior. You know, it came out in the form of uh, being the class clown, acting out, um, very angry. I had a very short temper. So I was often the kid who was, you know, disciplined in class, sent out into the hallway, to the principal's office. You know, I, I didn't do well in school uh, because I wasn't mentally present. I right. wasn't, you know, I, I just wasn't there. Um, as I often say, I feel like I time traveled through that period of my life. Right. I have a I have a lot of gaps in the memory. I have there are a lot of things that I just don't remember things that people tell me that I did, events that I was present at that I don't recall because I was just I was in my head, you know? Right, right. What about when high school rolled around? I know it sounds like you went through a really rough bout of depression at that point. How did the uh, depression and anxiety manifest itself once you reached high school? So, you know, in high school, by the time I got to high school, I had really mastered the art of, of wearing this mask and, and pretending. And so, you know, I, I had friends and I participated in, you know, sporting activities and clubs and, you know, and by all outward appearances, I was, I was a normal guy. Unfortunately, you know, my, my schooling had always suffered and I never, never got good grades. And, you know, so around about the time, you know, my junior year rolled around and all of my uh, peers are talking about where they're going to go to college and what they want to do with their lives and their careers. Uh, I had no clue. Right. I had no clue. I had no options. You know, and and to compound it, you know, we grew up very poor. Uh, there wasn't a lot of money. Um, and even after my mom remarried, my my stepfather, who is a wonderful man and, and really has become my dad in, in my life. And so I, I, I've had a wonderful father figure who worked hard, but, but we didn't have a lot of money. And so, you know, there wasn't an option for them to pay for school. I, I couldn't get scholarships. And so, you know the future started to look very bleak for me. And then you couple that with being a teenager and all of the hormonal changes that go along with that. And then you couple that with a lifetime of, you know, unaddressed trauma and anxiety. And then 
growing up in Michigan where the winters are dark for, you know, months and months at a time. And I, I'm sorry for all of you who are experiencing that right now out there. (laughs) (laughs) It's not much better here in Minnesota. Let me tell you. (laughs) Exactly. Right. And, and so, you know, you, when you don't see the sun for, you know, for three months, um, seasonal affective disorder is a real thing. Right. And that depression, you know, would set in and each time that it did, it was worse and it got worse and worse. And, and again, by not addressing it, you know, those symptoms were just allowed to grow. Can you give us an idea what those symptoms were? Yeah. So I, yeah, I started to really withdraw, um, from first from, social situations from friends and from family. And then I stopped going to school. In fact, I ended up missing so much school that they threatened to not let me graduate high school that I was going to, they said that I was going to have to repeat a grade. Were you sleeping through the day or? And I was, I was sleeping through the day. I couldn't sleep at night. I had so much anxiety at night. I was having panic attacks um, on a regular basis, um, you know, and again, always related to health things. Um, I remember, you know, a particular time in my life when, uh, a nearby, you know, a family in the community, um, died from carbon monoxide poisoning. And I became convinced that everyone in my family was going to die from carbon monoxide. I became fixated on it. And would, you know, wake up in the middle of the night with every single physical symptom of carbon monoxide poisoning. I would feel dizzy, short of breath, um, and I would go up to my parents' room and I would wake them up in the middle of the night and say, we have to get out of the house. We're all going to die from carbon monoxide poisoning. Wow. And they'd be like, no, Jake, we're fine. We all feel fine. It's just you. Wow. And I'm guessing they didn't understand either that, that these were panic attacks and that you were, you know, going through this depressive episode. Well, I think, you know, during this time, you know, the flags were raised, right? And my mom started to really see some of the behaviors that she recognized from my father. Right. And... So, you know, as things, um, you know, got to a point where, you know, I really, I, I just stopped taking care of myself. Um, I stopped eating, I stopped bathing, I wasn't sleeping. And, you know, I, I got to the point where I just did not care if I lived or died. In fact, I welcomed the idea of death as a relief from the pain that I was experiencing. Right. And this was while you were still in high school? This is when I was in high school and, you know, so my mom, um, you know, finally got to the point where she said, no, we're, we're going to go and get help. You know, what happened to your father is not going to happen to you. And we went to the doctor and it was a very scary time, you know, because I finally, for the first time in my life, had to confront this lifetime of feeling like this, you know, all these years of 
everything that I experienced, you know, I was confronted with at that time. But there was also an incredible sense of relief that came with it. It seems like, you know, finally there might be some answers for what's going on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I got my first prescription for an antidepressant when I was 17 years old. Um, actually, maybe 16 years old. I think I was still 16 at that point. And, you know, it it helped. Do you remember that, that very first appointment walking in that door with your mom? You know, there's, there's a lot of haziness, right? There's a lot of haziness around that time. Um, I remember not so much the doctor's appointment, but I remember going to the doctor's. I remember the car ride there Uh and that just, I think a a real duality, right? A duality of like, you know, understanding that I, that something needed to change, that something needed to be fixed, but feeling um, this just sense of dread of, of wanting to deal with it, you know, right. Not, not wanting to, to talk about it, you know, cause it was just, it's, it's scary stuff, you oh, know, absolutely. And this is, you know, this is in the late nineties. And so there's a lot of, um, a lot of stigmas that really exist, um, that surround that, you know, and so, um, you know, that wasn't something people were openly talking about at the time. And, you know, and so I was really afraid of, of what might happen. Um, but of course, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that I did. I'm so glad that I talked about it. I'm, I'm glad that we went to the doctor, the, you know, the first prescription that I got, um, it helped. It didn't uh, fix everything. It didn't take all of the symptoms away, but it gave me the tiny, pinprick of hope right a little a little light at the end of a very dark tunnel that allowed me to hold on that allowed me to feel like I could stay and that's a feeling that I had not had in a very very long time right and and that place when you lose hope is such a dangerous place to be so like you said even if it just gave you a smidge of hope that's enough to, to move you along. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's also another really important thing that happened during this time. And, you know, being suicidal is, you know, there's such a duality to it. And, you know, I keep using that word because I think it just, it fits so well, um, this entire process, but being suicidal made me realize something for the first time, something that I had, I never ever had understood before, you know, because I grew up so angry, so angry about everything, but especially angry at my father, Mm. angry for the fact that he, he left us. Uh, I used to think he was weak. I used to think that he, you know, was somehow, um, you know, flawed or broken because of the way that he died. And I always resented him for that. 
And I, I never understood why he would do that to us. But going through depression and being suicidal myself gave me an insight into his life and into his mind that I had never had before. And understanding what it's like at the depths and understanding what it feels like to not want to live anymore, I felt closer to my father than I ever had. And I understood him in a way that I never, ever had before. Right. Wow. That is, that's incredible. It makes a lot of sense. You know, I can understand, uh, I have written a blog piece about suicide not being selfish and, and I get angry when, when people write just kind of nasty messages like so-and-so is, was selfish, you know, and they took their own mm -hmm. life and mm -hmm. I don't think they understand the pain that one is in and the mm -hmm. suffering and the loss of hope. And, you know, I, I was at that point where I finally understood why people who have said I would never take my life because of my family have unfortunately tragically taken their lives. Like it, I, it made sense to me. I had four little kids and, and I was close and it wasn't about being selfish. It was about, I, I really felt like I was a burden. I really felt like everybody would be so much better off if I wasn't alive. Yeah. And what, uh, what a sad situation to be in, right? To feel like such a burden to people and to feel like people would be better off without you. But, but I understand how that goes. And, you know, and with that understanding, uh, came a peace, right? A peace with my father's death. And I was finally able to forgive him, which was, I think, such an important process for me to go through, to, to understand and to forgive him, uh, and to also, again, come to that realization that this wasn't necessarily a death sentence for me, too. Right. Man, that must have been a huge turning point for you to come to that realization. It was. It, it was, you know, a really big step. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, going to the doctor and getting a prescription didn't fix everything, you know, right, and, and right. so um, that was really a, a step, yeah, in, in the direction toward healing, toward um, finding some sustainability in, in my wellness. But it was the first step in a very long journey. Yeah. And, you know, over the next uh, 10 years, I saw half a dozen different doctors and psychiatrists and uh, counselors. And I ended up being prescribed a total of 33 different combinations of pharmaceuticals to try to fix my brain. Whoa. Yeah. That is a lot of medicine. Yeah. And, you know, during that time, I was diagnosed with everything from clinical depression to generalized anxiety, seasonal affective disorder, and at one point, even bipolar disorder. And they gave me meds for all of it. But, you know, again, this is the late 90s, early 2000s. And so, you know, the, the methodology was, here's a prescription. Let's see if this works. Oh, that didn't work. Let's try another prescription. Oh, that didn't work. 
let's add this medication. And so I literally, I took everything, A to Z, uh, like Ambien, Effexor, to Welbutrin and Zoloft, you name it, like I took it. Uh, and so at that point, you know, I had literally become a human experiment. You know, the fear that I had as a child had become realized because the doctors were, they were experimenting to see what would work to fix my brain. Right. Wow. And I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. Uh, none of it fixed my brain. <laughs> right. Some of it helped. Some of it helped a lot, you know, but some of it, you know, the side effects were so bad that they were almost as bad as the depression. And, you know, some of them, um, you know, made me feel so listless and lifeless that I might as well have been a zombie. Right. You know, this... Depakote in particular was, was, uh, one that was just not a good fit for me. Right. This was, uh, starting from high school and you said about 10 years of going on and off different meds. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yep. For the next, next 10 years. So, um, into my, um, my late twenties, um, was really when I, um, went through that period. Um, and of course, you know, when the, uh, pharmaceuticals didn't work, then, you know, I decided to, uh, conduct my own experiments in the form of, uh, alcohol and drugs and, right. um, <laughs> other, other things to try to make myself feel better. You know, you mentioned, uh, not going to, so you didn't in the end go to college. Is that right? Well, I tried, okay. <laughs> I, uh, I, I tried to go to college. I, I went, um, I enrolled in the community college, um, numerous times over uh, the next few years. So between the age of 18 and 21, I, I must've enrolled, um, four different times. Um, and I would sign up for classes and get so excited and take out loans and then one by one, I would end up dropping them because a, you know, I was still dealing with mental health issues, right. uh, but, but B, I had never really learned how to learn, mm, you know, right. because of my childhood, because of the way that I went through school, I, you know, I never learned how to be a good student. Nothing had prepared me for what it was like to be in college. And so I just, I didn't know how to be successful in that environment. And so, you know, unfortunately I, I, you know, wasted a bunch of money and a bunch of time tr trying to participate in, you know, something that I wasn't ready for. Yeah. And then I'm, I can only imagine what that did for your mental health, which is already at a difficult point and then having to drop classes and feeling like you can't be successful in school. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you couple that with, you know, moving out of my parents' house and being on my own for the first time and, you know, starting to experiment with alcohol and, you know, um, cigarettes and, you know, all sorts of stupid stuff, you know, I mean, very quickly, you know, it, it was, it was a recipe for disaster. Were you working at the time? Yeah. So, you know, I, <laughs> this is also part of, uh, part of what they don't tell you about mental health issues is that, um, it's really hard to hold down a job, yeah, yeah. you especially, know, especially when you just start doing the self-medicating pieces of yep. the uh, drugs and booze. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, really what, um, what, the, the, this period of my life, I ended up, 
I, I was kind of um, serially uh, employed at uh, many different restaurants, um, and it, it kind of mirrored my um, my approach to relationships as well. <laughs> so I, you know, during that time, I I really I had trouble holding down a job, and I had trouble holding on to a relationship. You know, and and again, it's it's no wonder looking back because, you know, I just I didn't have those skill sets and I was still in survival mode. And so, you know, I wasn't in a place where I could do any of that sustainably. Right. And just how bad did the booze and drugs get? Well, you know, it, it got to the point where at the, the lowest point of it in my uh, early twenties, um, I was actually arrested for malicious destruction of property uh, felony offense. Uh, I threw a brick through somebody's windshield Whoa. and, uh, I got arrested and I went to jail. Wow. How much time did you have to do? Uh, well, very fortunately, um, my mom came to my rescue again. Right. So, you know, I, I only had to spend a day, but I, uh, was sentenced, you know, like I said, felony offense. And yeah. so I spent the next three years paying restitution and making monthly visits to the Cook County Jail on the south side of Chicago. Oh, my goodness. And I would imagine that that had to have been challenging for you, but also your mom to see you almost going down what looks like the footsteps of where your dad had been. Yeah, I think it was a lot of deja vu for her. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, coupled with the fact that, you know, you know, keep in mind, I, I have a sister and a brother who, you know, went through the same experiences and in their own ways, you know, struggled with with things as well. You know, not only mental health stuff issues, but, you know, with some substance use. And, um, you know, and, and so it was not just me, it was really the three of us who, right. you know, had these issues that we were trying to cope with and a past that we were trying to reconcile. Yeah. So you're, you're using at the time. What happens? Uh, how do you eventually break out of this? Well, I, I didn't for a long time. You know, I, I've really, the only sustainable employment that I found really, I think, supported my habit, which was in the hospitality industry. So I started working in restaurants and, um, you know, I bartended, um, which allowed me to, um, pretty much drink all night, uh, while I was working, you know, I would get out at two or three o'clock in the morning and go, uh, go out after work, uh, drink some more. I was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day and I would stay up until the sun came up and wow. yeah, it was not, it was not a healthy time in my life. Um, the, the interesting thing was that, you know, despite all of that, I, you know, I knew better. I knew, you know, I had been raised, you know, with a, a good moral compass and, you know, my, my grandfather is the pastor of a Bible church. And so I grew up in his church and, you know, so I, um, I knew that the lifestyle that I was living was not, not my true nature. But when you're in that cycle of addiction, when you're self-treating your anxiety and your depression, you know, it's hard to see past that, you know? Right. Absolutely. 
So there was a very interesting set of events that led to me actually finding the, the, the new path that I've been on for the last 10 years. So I was recruited to work in sales. One of my regulars at the bar that I was managing at the time uh, saw something in me and thought that I'd be really great at sales. And he was starting a company and he uh, invited me to come and work with him and be a sales guy. Now, I had no college degree. I had no experience doing that type of work um, unless you count selling alcohol, but that kind of sells itself. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> so, not, a, not a big sales pitch you have to get behind the bar. Huh? <laughs> not a lot of skill involved with that, right? Um, but, you know, um, it was uh, it was an interesting opportunity. And, you know, I, I had told him uh, at first, I said no, because um, I had actually moved to Chicago to be an actor. You know, that was that was really the only skill set that I had. You know, I, I grew up acting, right? I grew up with this mask yeah. and pretending to be someone else. And so that, I, I was like, yeah, that I can do. Right. Uh, so that's why I moved to Chicago. But so when we, and he offered me this job, I was like, no, I don't want to be in sales. I don't want to sit in a, at a desk and, you know, do that sort of work. And then he's like, well, you know, this is how much I'm going to pay. You. And if you sell really well, this is how much you can make. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be a sales guy. Sweet. And what exactly <laughs> were you selling? Uh, I was selling uh, point of sale hardware. So this was a, a kind of a cool time in the uh, when refurbished computer hardware was really um, starting to become you know a viable industry. Right. And so this this company would purchase uh, equipment that was coming out of installation from you know from chain stores, from restaurants, you know companies going out of business, something like that. And we would bring it in, refurbish it, and then remarket it. And we were, we, we did not sell something unless we were making a hundred percent margin on it. And routinely we were making 500 to a thousand times what we paid for it. Wow. Uh, yeah. So when I say that we were making money, uh, it's no exaggeration. And, um, very quickly, um, I went from, from a bartender who is making about, uh, $25,000 a year to uh, the VP of sales of this company in charge of a team. And uh, I was, uh, by the time I was uh, 28 years old, I was making $100,000. Oh my God, what a story. And this was just uh, through a regular at the bar who, who <laughs> saw something in you, like you said. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. Now, when you started making all this money, was that just being dumped right into more booze and more drugs? Oh, you betcha. I, uh, <laughs> right, right. I, I, well, you know, I, I'd never had money. I didn't know how to, how to deal with it. I didn't know, you know, how to do things like save. So, right. Right. Well, you it, mentioned growing up in poverty as well. Yeah. You know, and, and we didn't, um, we didn't, the only discussion about money growing up was that we didn't have it, uh, how hard we had to work for it and the fact that life was hard because of it. Right? right. That was my relationship with money. And so when, 
you know, when I far, finally started making some and mind you, you know, I was like, this was between, you know, the ages of 24 and 28, you know, I was having the time of my life, you know, I mean, we were, we were jet setting all over the place. We would go to Miami, we would go to Vegas, we would treat clients and, you know, I mean, it was, it was nonstop parties and, you know, I, I bought, I bought a, uh, a condo in downtown Chicago for a quarter of a million dollars. Wow. Uh, at, yeah, 26 years old, I had the German sports car, the model girlfriend, and I was, I was, you know, working all day. I was, I was working, you know, 80 hours a week. Our office was at the, the mercantile exchange in Chicago, which is where all of the, um, at the time, you know, the, uh, commodities traders were. And so I'm surrounded by a bunch of guys who, you know, drink and smoke and do Coke and, you know, and it was just an environment that, um, really supported debauchery. Right. You know? Right. And, you know, for me, you know, working all of, all of those hours, um, still having really undertreated anxiety and depression. I was eating multiple meals at my desk, going out after work and drinking every night, still smoking a pack a day. I weighed uh, about 30 pounds more than I do now. I uh, had an ulcer. I was having frequent uh, panic attacks during the day where I would uh, run to the bathroom uh, because I would th I would think that I was having a heart attack, um, lock myself in the bathroom stall, feeling like I was dizzy, my heart being out of my chest, um, you know, thinking that I'm having a heart attack and, and just tears streaming down my face because I was convinced at any second that I was going to drop dead and die. Wow. Yet all this time you were able to hold this job down. For four years, uh -huh. for four years, but you know, it catches up again, right. you know? And so that was the second time in my life where, you know, at, uh, 28 that it had really caught up with me again. And, you know, of course it became unsustainable and, you know, it started to affect my performance at work. And I, you know, it started, you know, I was showing up late and then I wasn't showing up and my numbers were slipping. And, you know, so that's when my boss, you know, my friend, my mentor, uh, came to me and said, what's going on? Right. And, you know, at that point I had used every single excuse in the book. Right, right. You know, I had already been through, you know, every act that I knew to try to get out of it, to try to, to try to, you know, survive. And the thing is, is that I had run out of excuses. And so for the first time in my life, outside of my, my family, and my healthcare providers, I decided to do something that I had never done before. And I told the truth. Wow. And I, I told him my story and I told him that I lived with anxiety that I lived with depression and that, uh, that was what was affecting me. Um, and the interesting thing is, is he thought 
that I was being recruited by another company or he thought that I was going to go out and start my own shop and go and compete against him. And he had no idea that this is what I was dealing with. Wow. Did you share with him about your late nights of boozing and, and all of those pieces as well? Well, he knew about that because he was part of most of it. But, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, but, you know, the difference was is that, you know, I was doing it to treat yeah. mental health issues, right? Right, exactly. And I'll, I'll never forget what he said. My boss, my friend, my mentor, he looked me right in the eyes. I was sitting across from him at his desk and he looked me right in the eyes and he said, well, Jake, I think you just have a weak constitution and you need to get over it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. A weak constitution as if somehow my very makeup was flawed. Right. Like I was less than because of mental health issues. And I, you know, I had never faced those stigmas as much as I had that day. And I realized two things that day. One, that that was a very toxic environment and I had to get out of there or else I was, I was going to die. And the second thing that I realized was that he was a complete asshole. Yeah. And that there are people in the world who believe like that. There are people in the world who think that mental health issues are some sort of a weakness of character. And what he didn't realize was that I had been exhibiting so much strength for my entire life. How hard I worked to keep my head above water. How hard I worked to stay alive. If he knew what it took to keep up appearances, to, to survive under those circumstances, you know, the, he, I don't know if he would have realized, but, you know, but that's the truth of it. That's the truth of it is that, you know, I had to be so strong and I was so strong for so long that eventually the cracks started to show, you know? Right. Were you, uh, at the time able to articulate any of that to him and to respond to him or did you just shut down? Uh, how did you respond? Well, I responded in, uh, a pretty unique way. I moved to Argentina. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know, I had been down there, um, the year before for a wedding and, um, you know, just really fallen in love with the culture and the people. And, you know, I had started to see a life that I wasn't living a life that I could have. And so, yeah, that was my big solution was I, I quit my job and I sold my condo and I moved to Argentina. And was that really your way of escaping from everything? Yeah. I mean, I, I think in hindsight, yes. 
Um, right. You know, at the time I, th- I saw it as a grand adventure. You know, I had never been to, you know, school. I didn't have, you know, the opportunity to study abroad or, right. you know, we didn't, we didn't travel when I was a kid. I, I had never, you know, been anywhere internationally outside of Mexico or Canada. And so, you know, for me, that was, you know, I saw it as a big adventure, but really, yeah, it was, it was just a great escape. Yeah. And at that point, how was your mental health and, uh, how long did you last in Argentina? (laughs) Well, uh, so the interesting thing is I, I was actually only planning on going down there for a couple months, but, uh, once I got down there, you know, I just, I really started enjoying myself and I had a, I had a very unique experience on the way down there, which ended up being pretty life changing for me. And, and, and that led to, well, um, to the way that my life is now, which was, well, there's kind of, uh, there's, there's two elements to it. So one is that a friend of mine lent me the book, the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. And, you know, this is 2008. So that book had just come out and, you know, it's all about, uh, working remotely, all about increasing your effectiveness with your, with your work day. And it, just totally opened up my mind to a completely different way of living and a different way of working. And so this idea was planted, this seed was planted in my head that, well, I could live anywhere in the world that I wanted to and do work with clients in the United States. And at that time I had, you know, been exploring voiceover work as part of my acting training. And, uh, you know, and so I realized that really all I needed was a microphone and I could live anywhere and do the work that I wanted to do. So, uh, so that was part of the big change. That was part of what led to really changing my life. But the even bigger aspect of that was on the, on the very plane ride down to Argentina. Now at the time I had debilitating fear of flying to the point where I would basically have one big long panic attack during the entire flight. And so, you know, the idea of an 11 hour flight down to Buenos Aires was scary as hell, right? right? Oh yeah. So, you know, my solution was to pop a Xanax, have a gin and tonic, maybe a sleeping pill and just try to pass out. Cause keep in mind, I was still smoking a pack a day at that point. And so, you know, there wasn't enough nicotine gum to be able to right. get me through that flight. So, you know, the only thing that was attractive at that point was just being comatose and not, you know, not, not registering it. But, you know, I, I was committed to, uh, to going down there, to making this change and to, you know, doing something different with my life. So, uh, as 
the flight is taking off, um, you know, I look over to my left and there's an older gentleman sitting uh, in the row across from me. And, you know, we, we give each other a polite nod and, you know, as you do. And, uh, you know, then I, I kind of close my eyes and I try to, you know, grip my teeth and, and get through, get through the takeoff. Well, shortly after that, he leans over to me and he says, so what's taking you to Argentina? I was like, man, I don't want to talk to this old guy. This is like the last thing that I want to do. I just, like I said, I just want to pass out. Yeah, right. You know? like, You're loaded up with card? the Xanax. You've got exactly. the booze, the drink in your hand, and and he yeah, wants exactly. to chat with you. And he wants to chat with me. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a polite Midwestern kid, so I <laughs> indulge him. <laughs> And uh, a really incredible thing happened. Uh, this man, and I, I don't know why, why he decided to do this, um, but he started to share with me his story. And he told me about his experience losing a parent to suicide. And he told me, about living with anxiety and he told me about living with depression wow that's that is amazing like what a coincidence you could have sat by anybody and yeah and for the next four hours we just talked nonstop, and that was the first time in my life that i experienced peer support right that I heard from someone who had had similar experiences and had not only survived them, but come out on the other side and was actually thriving in their life. And, and I'm guessing you shared your pieces as well. And I, I, I did mm-hmm. some, but I mostly just listened and right. I absorbed and I, it was such a surreal experience and I, I'm not someone who, you know, believes in angels or miracles or things of that nature. But man, if I had uh, a near God experience, that was it. Do you think it could have been the uh, Xanax and the booze? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Maybe I hallucinated the whole thing. That is, that is a distinct possibility. <laughs> wow, that is just amazing that you, holy crap, yeah. you sat right, that's amazing. Well, and it was one of those, like, just, like, the, here was the real miracle of it, is that I actually had an entire row to myself, and he had an entire row to himself. So we were sitting across the aisle from each other, and it was just us. Right. And, you know, so this, this whole flight down and, you know, I mean, during that time I I felt such peace and I felt, you know, such understanding, such empathy and, you know, and that like, it changed everything for me. Wow. That is amazing. And his life was, uh, was successful. You mentioned, uh, was he like a businessman? Was he American? Was he Argentinian? 
yeah, he was he was an American um, older gentleman, and you know, the 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 funny thing is is that we really we didn't talk a lot about the like the particulars of you know our like our our current life. So I don't right. I really I don't know a lot about the guy. You know, I know his name. His name is John. Uh, I know that he. He changed my life. We didn't exchange information. We don't keep in touch. It was one of those experiences. Like it was, you know, you know when it was like you're in an experience and and you just kind of you you absorb it and you're there and then after the fact you're like, oh, oh my god, like what what was that? You know, and I I it, it was like later on I was like, oh I should have gotten should have gotten his contact info or I should have you know this or that and then. You know, and I, and I actually had that that feeling for a long time. Like, oh, I should have, you know. But the place that I've come to now is, you know what? That was exactly what it was supposed to be. Yeah. You know, that was the time we were supposed to spend together. That was what needed to be exchanged. And for me, you know, to be honest, I think that's about all I could handle. Cause you know, it really, I, th- I think it took me a long time to process and it took me the next several months in Argentina of, of just kind of living life for a while to really ruminate and let that sink in. And the big lesson that I came away with was this, I had a personal responsibility for my own health. I had been depending on my mom I had been depending on the doctors. I'd been depending on the drugs. I'd been depending on the alcohol. I'd been depending on all of these things outside of myself to fix me, to fix my brain. But I wasn't doing the work. And the moment that I decided to take personal responsibility, to take really take ownership of my own wellness was when everything changed. Well, it seems like that must have just been an empowering moment of, I have the capacity and the capability to do this, and it's within me, and I'm going to be the one who dictates my health. Absolutely, yeah. And that's, that is the power of peer support. That is the absolute you know, amazing thing about it is it... it can show you what's possible. It can show you what someone else, an average everyday person like me, like John, can do in their lives to really be able to thrive despite these challenges. And, you know, and being faced with that, uh, I really ran out of excuses. Wow. So did things change for you immediately in Argentina? I know you mentioned you had to kind of ruminate on it, think on it, but did you did you quit the booze right away? Did you quit the drugs or what was that process like? Well, um you know, I ended up staying in Argentina for about 9 months. And then I I made my way up to to Costa Rica. And I was there for three months. And, you know, so part of that, you know, by that time I had, I had really run out of money. So my lifestyle changed quite a bit just out of necessity. You know, I wasn't making all that, you know, the, the six figures like I was before. 
And so not to say that I wasn't partying, that I wasn't, you know, doing that, that sort of thing, but you know, my, my priorities started to shift. And, and as that started to happen, just naturally, I, I really feel like it was an evolution that other stuff just started to fall away. You know, I, as I started to add positive things to my life, I just, I no longer wanted to do the things that weren't supporting me. You know, I think Costa Rica was an important time for me because there, you know, I was, I had found myself in this uh, interesting situation where, you know, I I couldn't work in Costa Rica because I didn't have a work permit. Um, But I had a friend um, who worked at, uh, at the Hilton there and she arranged a situation where I was able to give uh, kayak lessons and snorkeling tours in exchange for a dorm and three meals a day. Wow. So the lifestyle there was just very simple, very close to the earth, right? I was, I was in the sun. I was in the ocean. I was, you know, very, very active. Um, the meals are so simple, you know, it's like it's rice and beans and fruits and vegetables, you know, avocado, and it's just, um, so clean and so simple and healthy that I found just a lot of peace in that simplicity. And, you know, I, I really started to connect with myself and draw a very strong connection to what I put in my body and how my brain reacted. Discovering that connection, that connection between nutrition and the connection between physical fitness and my mood and my anxiety levels was was an amazing discovery. And, you know, so it started to really turn me on to the fact that I, I, I really had some control over this. I had, you know, there were things that I can do in my life to make noticeable changes in my mental health. And so th- then I, I really entered into the, the third and my current version of human experimentation, which is the experiments that I conduct now. The things that I do in my life, the, you know, input that I put in my body uh, and what I do with my body and how that affects my mental health. And I've become fascinated over the last 10 years with what I call wellness design, with customizing a system and customizing a plan for what works best for my brain, what works best for my wellness. And, you know, through that process and out of that, uh, it's evolved into what I now call uh, Five Bridges Wellness, which is, you know, essentially a construct for me to be able to experiment and figure out how to best take care of my mental health. Right. And this uh, Five Bridges is actually a piece of your No Stigmas organization as well correct 
Yeah. So no stigma is, you know, is it's a nonprofit organization that I, I really had the idea for back in 2007, but clearly wasn't in the spot to, uh, to be able to do anything with it. Um, but the impetus for it, for it was that interaction that I had with my boss, but we became uh, a nonprofit organization in, in 2011. And part of this, you know, the, the reason for starting it, um, was this experience with peer support and understanding that, you know, the power of our stories and the power of, you know, connection with other people who have been there is just incredible. And, you know, and so it, it really started as a forum, uh, for me to connect with other people. And, and, and it started on Facebook really, you know, this is when, you know, Facebook was so wildly popular and, you know, people still weren't talking about mental health, but there were these small groups of people, these small pockets of people in these private chats and private forums, um, who had started to talk about mental health, started to talk about, you know, their wellness. And so, you know, I connected, I connected with these people and, you know, as it, as it grew and as I shared my story and, you know, started to build a community around it, um, you know, I realized that it was something bigger than me and something, you know, more than just people chatting this, this form of peer support, you know, needed, needed some more organization around it. And so, so I gave it the name, no stigmas. And that's, that was really the beginning of it. Wow. That's awesome. So the, the peer support piece is it all still online? No, in fact, um, you know, we do have an online group, um, which connects, but, um, now we have, uh, these meetup groups, um, that are happening all over the world, uh, and people meet in their local communities and connect with like-minded people. You know, they're, they look different in each community. Um, in some communities, it's a coffee shop meetup. Uh, in other communities, it's a running group, you know, in other areas, uh, in Ottawa, Canada, there's a knitting group. <laughs> so, uh, the, the point is, is that people get together and are just simply allowed to be themselves. Right. We don't, we don't get together for the purpose of, of necessarily providing, you know, peer support. It's not like a church basement. Hi, my name is type situation. Um, we, we really like activity based interactions where people can get together and just be themselves. Um, they don't have to talk about mental health stuff, but, uh, they know that they're in a safe environment uh, where they can, if they right. want to. Oh, that's, that's phenomenal. Is that one of the largest pieces of no stigmas or other pieces? Can you share with us? Yeah, for sure. So um, overall, we have what's called the Ally Program. And the Ally Program has a few elements. So one of them is that uh, that peer support element or our Ally groups, as we call them. Um, but the other major component of the Ally Program is our Ally Training. So the Ally Training uh, exists both as uh, an online course and in-person workshops. And the online course um, is available uh, for free for anyone to just uh, go to our site at nostigmas.org and you can sign up, become a member. And um, the training takes you through three modules. 
the first is self-care, and then the second is peer support, and the third is advocacy. And we set it up in, in that way because, of course, self-care should be priority number one, right? Uh, being able to find sustainability with our, our health, our mental health, and, you know, have that investment in our own health is so important. And, you know, as we say, you, you can't give someone a drink from an empty well. So before participating in peer support, we really encourage people to focus on their self-care. And that can look a lot of different ways for different people. Um, we really foster a choose-your-own-adventure approach. So, you know, for some people that's, you know, therapy and pharmaceuticals and other people that's, um, you know, meditation and, you know, nutritional supplements. But however that looks for you, um, the important part is, is, is finding finding, you know, that sustainability and the five bridges wellness system is part of that, right? Is uh, a way and approach to, um, to practicing self-care. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think I jumped ahead. You had mentioned the five bridges. Can you touch on that briefly? Yeah, for sure. So, um, five bridges, which, you know, originally started as, um, as a minor component of, uh, of our self-care module, I, I've really grown into a full system that's that's really um, in and of itself. And uh, so the five bridges um, is essentially five areas of wellness that we can directly impact. So the first bridge is called base. And base, like uh, base camp, is a place where our support happens. It can include, you know, our friends and our family, our professionals. Uh, your base can also include any uh, place or anything that provides support. So for me, for instance, uh, nature therapy is a, is a big part of my wellness plan, right? Connecting with nature, getting out and hiking. So, so I really see that as part of my base, part of the, you know, the, the thing that, uh, sustains me. Um, some people really engage in, uh, in pet therapy, right? So that could be part of your base as well. Um, but the, the point is, is, is your base is, uh, is a customizable, uh, set of, you know, definable set of support systems that, you know, you determine, right. That may look very different from one person to another. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the, that's the beauty of, um, of five bridges is that it's not prescriptive. It's, it's simply, you know, a, a way to explore and a structure within to explore your wellness. So, so the first bridge is base. Uh, the second bridge is what I call fuel and fuel, just like the fuel that goes in your car can range from low grade to premium. And just like your car, the performance is dictated by the quality of the fuel that you put in your body. Now, the most common source of fuel that we all think about, of course, is, is our food, right? Is our nutrition. But that also includes beverages. It also includes supplements. And I go as far as saying that our fuel also includes 
the visual and auditory things that we put into our body. So the music we listen to, the media that we consume has an impact. Our system there has, an, has a reaction to whatever stimuli goes in, right? And so what, what goes in comes out some way or another, right? And um, so the, but the idea behind fuel is that, um, that the output is determined by, by what goes in. And, and again, with, like with all of this, you can customize the fuel that goes in the system and, you know, and then your, your body will react based on the quality of fuel. So I, I know you mentioned uh, supplements. Is this also the same category that you would put medications in if somebody chooses to be on meds? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for okay. mentioning that. Yeah. Um, definitely, you know, any, anything, you know, that any sort of input that, that you plug into the system, including pharmaceuticals, you know, goes, right. goes into that, you know, and, you know, like I said, I was on, I was on pharmaceuticals for 10 years. Um, and you know, it's, it's now been, um, it's now been about like just going on 10 years that I've actually been off of them now. Uh -huh. Um, and you know, and that was uh, a process that I went through with my doctor's help. Um, when I had a lot of, um, a lot of support, when I had implemented a lot of support structures in my life. And it was a, uh, it was a decision that I did not take lightly. Right. Um, you know, and so, you know, but the, the point is, is that, you know, whatever works best for you, you know, whether that's pharmaceuticals or supplements or um, some combination of both there, there's an, there's an opposite and equal reaction to whatever that fuel is. Right. Yeah. And so being conscious of that is, I, I think what I try to encourage people to do the most. So uh, then we move on to the third bridge. Once you fuel, uh, then the third bridge is called move. And move, of course, is what you do with your body. That's any of the, the kinetic energy um, that exists in your body. Of course, that includes uh, things like exercise, physical fitness, you know, but it also includes uh, things like body work, things like massage, acupuncture, chiropractic, any of these physical manipulations, physical movement, uh, kinesthetic energy that uh, not only helps our body um, grow, but also helps us expel the, the energy uh, that, that we have. And, you know, our muscles have memory, right? They store emotions, they store memories. And so this movement uh, moving our bodies, exercising our bodies, having body work done helps to release that muscle memory. And so that's why move is, is one of these bridges and why it has such a strong connection to wellness and to mental health. Right. So then we move on to the, uh, the fourth bridge and the fourth bridge after we've fueled, after we've moved, the fourth bridge is rest. And rest, of course, includes sleep. It includes uh, any period when we're able to uh, rejuvenate. So I include things like um, even naps and siestas, retreats in rest, um, because uh, that's a time when our body and our mind are able to recover. 
when we can unplug, when we can rejuvenate. And, you know, especially the sleep times are so important for replenishing all of those important brain chemicals that we have and, you know, giving our bodies uh, the time to process and our brains the time to process everything, all the stimuli that we've had throughout the day. Absolutely essential. Yeah. For me, if I don't get my seven, I have such a, a direct response to the amount of anxiety or to my mood if I'm not getting that solid amount of sleep. So, uh, you know, like with any of the other bridges, you know, our rest is something that we can customize, something that's different for each person, something that, you know, whether it's our, um, as I call it, our shutdown sequence at night, the way that we, you know, ultimately fall asleep, the way that we wake up in the morning, our relationship with having rest periods, extended rest periods in our lives. Um, that's all stuff that we can customize. It's all stuff that we can, you know, determine how we approach it and how best to find sustainability in that. And then we move on to the fifth and the final bridge, which is give. And give is our positive output. Once we've created the space and once we've fueled and moved and rested, then we get to this point where we're able to use this energy, use the sustainability that we found to go outside of ourselves, go beyond ourselves and connect with other people. And I think that giving is such an integral part of wellness that is often overlooked but when we connect with other people, and this is where peer support comes in in a lot of ways, is there's a direct benefit to our own wellness when we give to other people. And the simplest way to practice give and the easiest way to start is with gratitude. Just simply having gratitude for what we have it's so easy to focus on all of the negative things in our life, to focus on our diagnosis and, and the hard knocks that we've had. You know, that's right there in front of our face. But if we take the time to have a little bit of gratitude for the beautiful things that we have, for this life that we have, for this, you know, this amazing machine, this heart that beats inside of our bodies and pumps oxygenated nutrient rich blood through a network of veins that is so long it could stretch around the world twice like that lives that's inside of us you know to wake up in the morning and put your feet on the floor and say i'm alive and to be grateful for that to be grateful for the kindness that people show us and those small things that we have in our lives is is does such a wonder for just getting outside of ourselves, seeing beyond our own problems and our own issues and understanding that we are connected to other people in a way that is so much bigger than ourselves. And this, you know, leads into this idea that, of course, we're not alone. And of course, we matter and we're important. And so when it comes to things like, like, suicide and and thinking that we're a burden to other people and thinking that we should no longer be on this earth connecting back to that 
to that gratitude, connecting back to this idea of, of belonging to something greater than ourselves helps give us that perspective. Someone once said to me a really important thing, and it's that you are a very important piece of the most intricate puzzle that has ever existed. And without you, the picture is not complete. Yeah, I and like that, that. I, yeah, and that idea of give and that idea of gratitude and connecting is a big part of that. Well, and there's a lot of research that speaks to gratitude and even just thinking about things that you're grateful for and how that impacts you in such a powerful, positive way. I've heard of people, and I try to do it myself, uh, journal once in a while around mm -hmm. gratitude. And I've heard of some people who keep a daily gratitude journal and make sure that they're writing things that they're grateful for each day. Yep, absolutely. That's, that's actually, uh, I have an hour for uh, my wellness in the morning before I do anything, before I uh, touch my phone or open my computer, before I, I talk to anybody. I have one hour that is reserved specifically for me. And the very first thing that I do after I go to the bathroom is, is journal as I, and I write for 20 minutes and that time for me to, you know, fill out those morning pages to just have, uh, just a, f a fluidity of thought, just uh, go down on that paper and whether it's gratitude or, you know, the dreams that I have or my aspirations for the day, whatever it is, it's just such a tangible way of, of getting that out. Um, that's followed by 20 minutes of seated meditation and then another 20 minutes of some type of movement. And I, I do that hour before I eat, before I pick up my phone, before I do anything else. Well, you said it a few times. The, the piece that I really love about your five bridges is it's every single piece is customizable. So you can try different things um, within one bridge or I see them almost as buckets and mm -hmm. and see what fits you best and what works for you, which may look very different, yet be still around the same kind of topic, the same bridge. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the thing about five bridges is, you know, listen, it's not, it's not rocket science, right? I don't think it's revolutionary, but what it is, is it's a, it's a construct. It's a system and a way to, to understand these like often very nebulous things, right? Like when it comes to wellness, when it comes to our mental health, it's just like, it can be like walking through, you know, mud through the swamp and just trying to see your way out. Right. You know, and, and so this system is just a way of giving us a path, a bridge to walk over and to connect to the next. And, you know, whatever approach you use, you know, that's, that's what I encourage people the most, um, when I do, um, private coaching with them or when I do workshops, it's to simply find a system that works for you and, you know, connect those dots, find a blueprint and figure out a, a, a tangible way to approach your wellness that is, that you can build on right? That's scalable. So you start with one step and you move to the next 
and you move to the next and it's slow over time and there's no destination, <laughs> but you, you keep moving forward because as you do, as you gain these skill sets and as you keep doing the work day after day, it gets better. And let me tell you, after having done this for a long time now, it is absolutely 100% worth the effort. Oh, I'm sure. So you mentioned coaching, and then you also do some public speaking as well. Can you share that with us? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I've been telling my story for a long time now. And, you know, so I do um, lived experience talks um, as well as as workshops. And um, I've been very fortunate to um, to be able to travel, um, you know, quite a bit and, and connect with people and share my story. Uh, and, you know, it's it's something that I enjoy a lot. And, you know, something that I, I, I can use the skill sets that I gained, you know, uh, working in film. Um, to be able to, you know, to share that and, and, um, you know, let people know that they're not alone. So I've, you know, worked in you know, different corporations all over, um, the United States at universities and schools. Um, most recently I was just in Australia, uh, with my good friend, Kevin Hines, who I know, you know, and, um, you know, and was able to share my story there. But the, the thing that I love about public speaking the most is, um, really out of, out of all of it. I, I, I enjoy it all, but when I get to go to a high school and I stand, you know, in an auditorium or in a gym and I get to connect with these young people who are the age that I was when I no longer wanted to live and I... And I get to, I get to tell them my story and I get to tell them that it's worth it to keep living. It just comes full circle for me, you know? That's got to be an incredibly powerful uh, feeling for you to stand in front of them and to think back to your high school days. Yeah. You know, I, I think back to that time and I just wonder what would have been different in my life if someone, if anyone had just, instead of pegging me as the bad kid, as the misbehavior, as the one who always got in trouble or the one that had poor grades, if someone had just asked, what's really going on? What's really going on inside of this kid? I wonder what would have been different. Not that, not that I'm saying that I, I want to change my life or that I would change my life. I'm, I, I'm grateful for the life that I've lived and the path that I've been on. But, you know, I just, I, if I can be that person for these young people, uh, that's such a great gift. So, you know, that's why any, anywhere I travel, anywhere I go, I always offer to do free talks at the high schools. You know, I'm, I'm going to be in Virginia um, pretty soon. I'm going to be in Colorado pretty soon. And that's, that's always the offer that I make uh, while I'm there. Uh, is there an area high school that will have me come in? I'm not going to charge anything. I just want to come in and talk to these kids. And you know what? Every time that I do, every single time that I do, I invite people to stay afterward and talk with me if they want to. And 
every single time I have at least one young person that comes up to me and says that they were thinking of killing themselves and that after hearing me speak, they don't want to anymore. Yeah, that is an incredibly, incredibly rewarding moment, I'm sure. It, it's really, it's indescribable. And, and, you know, know that this is not me saying that I'm, I'm something fantastic. That's not what it's about. It's not about, um, how great I am. It's about the power of peer support. It's about the power of our stories and being vulnerable and sharing and what that does, that human connection, what that does. And anyone can do that. Anyone can be that person, can be that one for someone else. All it takes is opening up. And, and you don't even have to share. You don't even have to share your story or, or do that. All you have to do is listen. Just listen. Just be there for someone and, and open your ears and listen. And that's, that's a huge gift that you can give someone. Absolutely. Not only a huge gift, it could be a life-saving gift. Absolutely. 100%. So, you know, there is another piece that I want to talk about because we didn't talk about this for long uh, at all, actually. And I think it's interesting because I know we scheduled this interview slightly later because you were wrapping up a session of talk therapy for yourself. And we really mm -hmm. didn't talk about talk therapy too much throughout this interview. I'm wondering how talk therapy has impacted your life. And, uh, and I think this was a pretty big appointment you wrapped up just before our interview. Yeah, no, thanks for, for mentioning that. So this was actually, um, I, I've, I've been doing um, video therapy for the last two years. I've been using a service called betterhelp.com, which um, no stigmas, uh, we have a partnership with BetterHelp. So, you know, anyone who goes through our ally training um, gets a, uh, a seven-day trial of betterhelp.com with licensed therapists uh, for, for totally for free. And by the way, um, anyone who um, signs up also gets a year free premium subscription to Headspace, the mindfulness meditation app, which I use every single day uh, at no cost. So, uh, but uh, I've been using BetterHelp for the last two years, um, connected with a fantastic therapist. And I really love the service because I am able to, anywhere I travel, anywhere I go, no matter if I'm at home or, you know, uh, in, in London, um, I still get to have my therapy appointments. Um, and I still get to, um, connect with my therapist and, you know, even though I'm not in, um, you know, in a crisis situation, I'm not, um, you know, depressed or, um, dealing with any major health issues at the moment. Um, I, I believe 100% that therapy is, is important and for everyone. Um, we all need an impartial third party who's totally on our side and wants only the best for us. So, um, but in this, uh, this particular day, uh, is a bit poignant, a bit bittersweet because, uh, it was the very last session, uh, with my therapist, uh, who I've been with for two years, actually January 9th was, um, was the, uh, the two year anniversary of us working together, uh, which by the way, was the longest that I've ever worked with any one therapist. I've had dozens in my life, but, um, 
this uh, this therapist in particular um, was just a really good fit. He's actually moving on and um, and moving uh, into the next stage of his career and um, getting his doctorate. So um, he's no longer going to be um, practicing in that capacity. Um, and uh, you know, at first, I, I was a bit sad about it. Um, you know, cause we built such a rapport and he knows my history and, you know, and it's just scary that, you know, thinking about like moving on to, to a new therapist. Um, but you know, I, I'm really choosing to see it in a different way. Um, I'm looking at it as an opportunity for me to connect with a new therapist, someone who has a different skill set someone who I can maybe work on some different things with. And, and I think that's, I think that's a good thing. I think it's important for us, um, you know, to maybe not get so attached to our therapist that, uh, we become dependent or, you know, um, have developed something that maybe isn't, um, you know, still a, a professional relationship. So I think this, this is a good thing and I'm seeing it, you know, even though it's a little daunting to have to go through the process of finding, you know, a new therapist, right. um, I, I'm excited. I, I think that it's going to be a, a positive thing and, you know, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to, you know, beginning a, a new relationship and having new perspectives and, yeah. you know, maybe, um, starting to unpack some different things that I, I haven't, touched in a while or, or at all. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I did notice that you kind of snuck in another tool that I like, uh, which is reframing, right? I mean, you could be mm -hmm. dwelling on this thinking two years and now this guy's leaving. Uh, yep. This is devastating. This is going to be a huge blow to me, but instead you're reframing it and looking at it as an opportunity. And I think that's a, a fantastic way to look at it. And sometimes I think therapists can kind of run their course, right? He's given you probably tons of tools and mm -hmm. impacted you greatly. And like you said, now you'll have an opportunity to work with someone with a different skill set and may have different tools to share with you. Um, yeah. Cool. Hey, uh, I'd love for you to share again, and I'll put it in the notes for people, but how do people get uh, in touch with you? I know you have a bunch of videos online and a blog. What's the best way for people to find you online? Yeah, uh, I would love to connect with uh, anyone out there um, who wants to, you know, talk and um, explore ways to collaborate. Um, I, I love love that kind of stuff. So um, probably the easiest way um, to find me or to find out more about me is on my website, jacobmore.com. Um, but you can also, um, connect with me. I'm on uh, Instagram quite a bit and that's where I do a lot of my content creation and I'm blogging. Um, and I'm at Jacob Moore on Instagram as well. And if you, um, of course want to learn more about no stigmas and the work that we're doing, we would love to have you join the community. All of our services are for, are for free and you can, um, you know, join from the comfort of your own home or in your own community. And you can find us at no stigmas.org. It's stigmas with an S because there are more than one stigma out there. And, um, and of course on any social media platform at no stigmas, uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and even LinkedIn. All right. Fantastic. And then uh, finally, before we check out, I would love to hear any last pieces of 
advice or words of hope for somebody who might be listening and uh, struggling at the moment? Mm. Yeah, I'll share something um, that a really dear friend of mine shared with me when I was struggling. And this is something that her mentor shared with her. And I think really exemplifies, you know, what peer support is about and what the five bridges are about, you know, and it's this, you may not be in a place right now where you believe that you have worth. You may not be in a place right now where you believe that you can do it and that's okay. You don't have to believe it right now because I believe it for you. And I will continue to believe it for you until you're able to. So don't give up. Keep moving forward. Life is worth it. And you are not alone. Yeah, that's huge. Huge piece of advice. You are not alone. Well, Jake, I want to thank you so much uh, for taking the time to be on The Depression Files. It was incredible uh, speaking with you tonight, and it was great to hear more about your story and to learn more about the incredible work you do. So thank you for all of your work and all of your efforts in uh, helping others you know, improve their mental health. My pleasure, Al. It's, it's really been a, a treat being here with you. I, I appreciate your perspectives and all the work that you're doing to share these stories and to connect with people. It's absolutely incredible. So thank you. All right. Well, thanks again, and uh, make sure that you stay healthy. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.